earth has made a covenant with you. He has promised you that he will be your God and that you will be his people. The covenant is no mere legal formality. It's much more. as He's brought you into an intimate relationship with him. You are part of the bride of Christ and have been united in marriage to our husband. You are part of the children of the Father that has been adopted out of the family of this world and into the heavenly family. This new covenant, which is an everlasting covenant, is established on the foundation of Christ's shed blood on the cross for your sins. You now know God because of Christ's blood. You now are part of God's people because of Christ's resurrection and ascension. As God's people, you have that promise made sure. You indeed are God's people, and he indeed is your God. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed your sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Hallelujah. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We'll turn now to the epistle of Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9.
You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and who works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. Psalm 105, verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hear some of you... Uh, my hymn book only had six verses. Oh, ye of little faith. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we thank you that is the giving God who has showered grace upon us that you invite us into your presence. You've given us so many wonderful gifts beginning firstly with our Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus, the faithful one. And you've given us your written word like a husband and wife separated by distant shores who write to one another, you've written to us that we might know you and love you. 
and you've given us minds to think and consider and meditate. What a precious gift that is. And you've given us your spirit who unfolds and discloses to us your word. And you've given us yourself and you invite us to come and ask and you remind us you being evil know how to good give, give good gifts to your children how much more your father in heaven gift us this morning we pray in christ's name amen i uh am going to cover some of the same ground and move on we have one more lesson next week that will be a summary of uh, Galatians chapter 3. I'm on a mission. So to start the mission this morning, I want to remind you that in uh, Greek and Hebrew, we have uh, a word group, a cognate word for righteousness, which we in English cannot handle. And so we translate righteousness, just, justification, justify, rectify, all those are translations, but in Hebrew you don't have that problem. In uh, Hebrew and Greek we have one word for faith, and it can mean faithful. You put a negative before it, it can mean faithless. We, don't, we can't handle it, and so we translate it faith, faithful, believe, trust, not so in Greek and Hebrew. These words permeate the section we're looking at. And these words, of course, over history have come to mean certain things. And it's hard for us to uh, get ourselves out of a rut to think. We are called to meditate, 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 meditate on God's word because, you know, we can go down wrong grooves. And even the groove we've been down has been a good groove, but it needs to be broadened out to think more widely to understand about God and his son and his son's body, the church. Galatians is one of those epistles that needs a reinvestigation, a relook. We read Galatians through the eyes of Romans, and so did Luther. And yet you cannot apply the same questions to the book of Galatians that come in the book of Romans. Nowhere in Galatians is there the thought, this is written so that you might find out how to be right with a righteous God. It's not there. Nowhere in Galatians do you get the sense, how should I be right with a righteous God so that when I die, I can go to heaven? It's not there. The word salvation is not found in Galatians. The concept of imputation lies in the background of Galatians, but it is not in the foreground because that is not the subject. The subject is who belongs to Christ. Now clearly, when you make that kind of question, when you, when you ask that, you are talking about something that has to do with salvation. But when you come to Romans, it's, it's the same words, but used in a different setting, just like you and I use words in a different setting, in a different context. And we've spent 
precious little time understanding the context of Galatians. We speak about the church. It's been written for centuries. It's dubbed the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Those three words are an outline of the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians is really about Christ and his church, his kin, his seed, which makes us Abraham's seed, his family, as we'll see specifically next week. So the first two chapters are Paul's defense of his apostleship. The church is based on the foundation of the apostles. The second two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, are about the fact that the family of God is only one family, and it includes, which is important for their day, not so much for our day, it includes Jews and Gentiles. Two different nationalities are one family. How can that be? Well, that's where we've been bogged down over the centuries about blood kinship instead of promise kinship. That's what chapters 3 and 4 are about. The Catholic Church. You all know that Catholic comes from the word... Well, I shouldn't say it that way. Let me just start that part over. You all know that Catholic means universal. And the Roman Catholics have chosen the word to make a statement. They have varied it in Vatican II, but they haven't changed their doctrinal statement yet. The Roman Catholic Church, what they're telling you is, if you're not in the Roman Catholic Church, you're just flat not in the church. This is the only church. It's the worldwide church. But we use the word Catholic, and it's been used down through the centuries to speak about the fact that the church has many tribes, many languages, many nations, many peoples all around the globe. And what do they do? They all come to one God and they sit down at his table. Chapters 5 and 6 begin to talk about and talk about the application. If the law is to be set aside... And it is, in one sense, not totally. But if you set the law aside, then how are you going to live a holy life? That's chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. So we can say it's about the church, the holy, Catholic, apostolic church. Now, we understand the context because chapters 1 and 2 set the context Chapters 3 and 4 build off the context. Chapters 5 and 6 apply what happened in the context in chapters 1 and 2. And the context has to do with what happened in Antioch, where Peter came down for a nice little visit. And, of course, Peter is the main person through whom the gospel first went to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, and there was such a, a house-wide faith. And they asked him to stay, and he stayed a couple of days, which means he ate with them. And now he's come down to see what's happening in Antioch. Barnabas was sent there because uh, the scattered, the word scattered in the Greek 
is the word, the word to scatter seed. That's the word. Dysporia. Sporia. Seed. Well, under persecution, the seed was scattered and it went and planted new work in Antioch. First, only to Jews, but then finally some of the brethren came and started preaching to the Greeks, and the Greeks became believers in King Jesus, and they were there together all in one body, one local church. And then Barnabas came along, and Barnabas went off to find Paul in Cilicia and brought Paul back, and they ministered for a year before they were sent out on the first missionary journey. On coming back from that journey, this is just a guess, we don't know for sure, Peter came down to Antioch to see what was going on, and he had a fine time eating pork with the Gentiles. Never touched his lips before. Of course, I made that up. I have no idea what he ate. But he did eat with Gentiles, and Gentiles did not eat kosher food, so I'm assuming he was violating the food laws. But, of course, he'd already learned in that vision with his big sheet coming down to heaven. He, he'd already learned, oh, yeah, yeah, all that stuff we were restricted from because of the death and resurrection of Christ. Ah, restriction is gone. Time for bacon. Bacon makes everything better some even tell me it makes donuts better. He came down, he ate with the Gentiles, and then some people came from Jerusalem. And we, we know about these kind of people because that's what the Jerusalem council's about. And, and they believed you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. And when they came, Peter, like all of us, he became a little skittish, a little worried, and so... He backed off and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He only ate with the Jews. And so Paul called him out in the front of everyone. You'd think, you know, well, that's the way it happens with elders, isn't it? When an elder sins, after you get two or three witnesses, you rebuke him in the presence of all so that everyone will learn. Now, Peter has done this, and he's drawn the Jewish people away from the Gentiles, and so he's got two different tables, and the implication is God's got two different families. These Jews over here are circumcised, and they're superior, and over here are these Gentiles who don't know the things they should know. Well, we know Peter didn't believe that, but he was pressured, not by anyone, but himself. And so, Paul rebukes him. If you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And the word compelled is used in chapter 2 in compelling Titus to be circumcised. The word compelled is used in chapter 6 that they compel you to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. And that's what it means right here. Peter wasn't saying it with his lips, but by his actions, he's saying, I can't eat with you unless you are circumcised. And where does that go to? Well, that goes to Passover. Because Gentiles could not partake of Passover lest they were circumcised. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't partake of other sacrifices. They did. It doesn't mean that they couldn't be, in our terminology, Christians. They were. 
it does mean that they were second class people. They could only partake of the Passover if they became a Jew through circumcision. But what has happened at the death of Christ is there's a new creation, and that's partly what Galatians is about. And we saw it last week. It's in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He delivered us out of this present evil age. He gave himself for our sins. And when Jesus died and rose again, you got the age moving along, moving along, and then boom, a new age starts. Because it's never happened before. Since creation, all the way back in Genesis 1, nothing new under the sun until what? Jesus rises from the dead and a new age begins. And they overlap for a period of 40 years and then the old evil age in which the Gentiles were classed as sinners and Israel was classed as apostate. It died. And hence, when you start from A.D. 70 onward, after there's only one age left, a new age, a messianic age, the age of the king, well, you just drop off the titles Gentile and Jew. You don't need them anymore. There's one family. Chapter 3 tells us that the scriptures foresee this made promises to Abraham about his seed that would include all kinds of people, but would be one family. That's the church. Now, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. And in Galatians chapter 2, which we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we saw in verses 15 through 21 this most central section. And it's kind of, a, kind of a, a conclusion to the whole historical side of what happened with Paul. And there are bookends. So when you start up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, you find out about the grace of God. When you come down here to chapter 2, verse 20, you find out about the grace of God. When you come back up to chapter 1, you find out about Jesus gave himself. When you come down here to 2, 19 and following, Jesus gave himself for us. It's bookends. But these bookends broaden out all the way to where chapter, I should start over here, chapter 1 bookends to the end. So in chapter 1, uh, he's putting an end to this present evil age. That is a new age is starting. You get down to chapter 6. And what matters? Not circumcision. Only one thing matters. A new creation. When Jesus rose from the dead, Israel's history came to fruition in one Israelite king. And of course, what do kings do? Good kings. The king wraps all his people up in his arm. He wears them like a garment. And that's where you get the expression in Christ. Now, everybody remembers, don't they? The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Jesus Christ. Christ is the word Messiah. Hebrew Messiah, Greek Christ. It means anointed. 
What is it talking about? Well, you could translate it king. The Lord, King Jesus. Jesus is his human name, Yahshua, Yahweh saves. Christ is his office. He is king of kings. What kings is he king of? He's king of kings. Who are the kings? You are the kings. He's king of kings and Lord of all. And the word Lord speaks about his deity. He is sovereign. Sovereign King Jesus. This is a fantastic little epistle. It doesn't take that long to read. It is very dense and it's difficult to understand. And it's easy to lapse into 16th century Reformation theology without saying, wait a minute, is there another groove here I'm missing? We're not decrying what happened to the Reformation. We're saying, you know, truth goes on. It marches on and it grows and expands. It's always there, but the church hasn't seen it. There's new stuff in Galatians to see. So chapter 2, verses 15 and following is this dense little section and it uses the word Christ a lot and Jesus. And it uses the word faith, faithfulness a lot. And it uses the word righteousness, maybe translated that way in some of your Bibles, justify in some of your Bibles, declare righteous in some of your Bibles, all, all, all the same cognate root. There's a book written in the... Good books don't always cost a lot of money, but some books cost a lot of money. And uh, years ago, I was put onto this book, and I was reminded as I was thinking about this early this morning, a book written by Teresa Morgan. It was called Roman Faith and Christian Faith. Pistis, which is the word Greek word for faith, fide, Latin word for faith, in the Roman Empire and in the churches. And the contention of the book is that the word faith and the word justification is used in common everyday Greek to talk about relationships. We use it in a law court. That's what we know so well. And of course, it's in the Bible. We said that last week. It's just not in Galatians, except by extension. Instead, it's used in a different fashion. And it goes all the way back to Abraham. So let me just explain that one more time. I'm guessing most of us don't quite have it down yet. But in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, everybody knows that. Because Abraham, oh, he was troubled because God had made him these promises. And uh, the promise was he would inherit through his offspring, his seed. But he had no seed. He was an old man and he had an old wife and they couldn't bear children. And so he said, okay, here, uh, I'll adopt this servant of my house, Eliezer, and he'll become my heir. And God said, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. Your heir is going to come from your body. Now, just notice the terminology, your body body, that is, husband and wife are one. It's coming from your body. 
And then God takes him out and shows him all these stars of the heaven. And he says, this is what you, if you can count this, this is what your seed will be like. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Sadekiah is the Hebrew term. It's just one word. And we have one word in Greek for it, the kaio, and it has many different ideas and many different thoughts. Okay, so now, this is picked up by Paul in Galatians. This is picked up by Paul in uh, Romans, especially in Romans. But Romans and Galatians are not the same, and I think I told you last week, let's just say Galatians is written somewhere around uh, the late 40s, say 47 A.D., and Romans is written almost 10 years later. Which one comes first? Galatians comes first. But the way we do Galatians is we take Romans and we stuff it right back into Galatians. Galatians came first. Now, in the Old Testament, the expression, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, is used one other time, and it's used in Psalm 106, and it's referring to Phineas. And you remember what Phineas did. The Israelites started courting the Midianite women, went to their sacrifices and ate with them and brought them back to their tents. 24,000 Israelites were killed because of that sin. And there was one brazen man who brought a woman back when everybody was weeping in front of the tabernacle. And Phineas picked up a spear, chased them down into their tent, and shoved the spear through the two of them, caught in flagranti lecti. And in Psalm 106 it says, This is reckoned to Phineas and to his seed for all generations. Same word, same expression. But in Numbers chapter 25, it says, I will give him a covenant of peace to all of his generations. So what do we conclude from that? What must we take? It is the two expressions out of the Old Testament that are the same. We build on that kind of stuff. We thrive to see that because it helps our understanding. And we realize the word justification is not simply a legal term. It is a family term. It has to do with a covenant. And uh, just about in 27 days, well, exactly 27 days, there's going to be a wedding here. And right now, those two fine young people have an identity. But on whatever day that is, I don't remember their identity is going to change. And it's going to happen through a rite, a ritual. And at some point, I will have the privilege of saying in that wedding, I now pronounce you man and wife. And just like that, they are man and wife. Their identity is changed. Elizabeth will talk to people about her husband. Timothy will talk to people about his wife. Why are they getting married? Well, you know, there's a thousand reasons for that. First of all, it's biblical. 
But second of all, they've come to know each other. And what? They believe in each other. That is pistis. That is, they consider each other trustworthy. That's a translation of that word. They consider each other faithful. They're going to vow and make a covenant that's going to bring them together as one, and they will be faithful to each other until death does part them. That's what Galatians 2 is about. How do you know who belongs to the church of Jesus Christ? Who's a part of his bride? Well, in the Old Testament, you know how people belonged. In the Old Covenant, they were circumcised. And Peter's action is saying, okay, if you want to belong to God, be a part of God's people, you've got to be circumcised. And Paul calls him out for it. So what's the marker now? Well, the marker is pistis, faith. So, sorry, I had to turn to Galatians 2, and I haven't even struck down there to do anything about it yet. Okay, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to listen as I read. Look at your text, and I'm going to give you the text of verse 16 in five lines. I'm just going to read it to you. The words change a little just, to, just so it flows a little better. So, Paul says this. This is him speaking to Peter. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, not declared righteous by the works of the law, line two, but through the faithfulness of King Jesus, line three, even we have believed in King Jesus, line four, that we may be declared righteous by the faithfulness of the king, line five, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be declared righteous. Ah, you see it. You're working your way out. What's on the outer end? Ah, two lines that match up. What's next? Two lines that match up. What's right in the middle? Ah, believing. Pistis. But what's the two lines right before it? This, this is one reason you know how to do the translation. Now, some of you are so used to seeing all the time, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. It's hard to get used to the idea, and your Bibles probably don't even say it, the faithfulness of Jesus. But I do know Greek, and it is a valid translation. Okay, so if you think chiastically, which we've been learning, the Bible's written chiastically, so we'd better get on it and think chiastically. If we work our way in, the very center is just the way we say it. Believing, trusting in Jesus. But the two lines just before that, we're justified, we're declared right by the faithfulness of King Jesus. By the faithfulness, by the faith of King Jesus. And then the outside lines are, is because by the law, nobody can be declared righteous. Nobody gets a covenant from God. What happened in Genesis chapter 6? Here, here are all the stars. Look, 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 look. If you can number them, you'll be able to count your 
seed. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And what's the very next thing that happens? Covenant! God made covenant with Abraham. This is what Galatians is about. So, how do you identify somebody who belongs to Christ? Real simple. Not by circumcision. Not by how much money they give to the church. You identify them by faith, or you might translate it faithfulness. Even we believed in King Jesus that we might be justified in the faithfulness of King Jesus. Now, what is he talking about? This, this translation ought to please you because the hard lifting falls on Jesus. You see, Jesus was faithful to his father. Even though he were his son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered, and now he's become the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. It's Jesus who went to the cross. It's Jesus who took care of and dispersed and overthrew the principalities and the powers that waved sin over us and kept us in fear and bondage. But now Jesus at the cross carried all that sin away in his body. And according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, he defeated all these, whatever they are, that held sway over us. He did the heavy lifting. And of course, this faithfulness of Jesus is not just doing what the Father said to die on the cross and he's done being faithful. This faithfulness of Jesus continues because he draws us into his kinship and he takes care of us therein that's what jesus does you want to sing he holds me fast this is galatians 2 the faith a man is justified in the faithfulness of king jesus isn't that great yeah Now, I had that written out. Now I need to go back to uh, regular Galatians for a minute. So, uh, got to get there. Galatians chapter 2, of course, there's more said than what we just read. That's kind of where we were last week. And, you know, so we're now just about to move on. You know, Charlie went to a church in New Mexico where the guy taught Sunday school. He just repeated everything he did the week before except for about five minutes of new stuff. I was there. It took forever to get through something. Okay, look at, uh, look at verse 17. You know, so you're, you read that verse 16. It is, just, it is so dense. It, it's, it's, it, you just got to stop and think. But then Paul says something in verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ. Here's this union terminology, in Christ. We ourselves have also been found to be sinners. Is 
Christ then a deacon of sin? May it never be. So Paul says, okay, here's what we're doing. We're seeking to be justified in Christ. Now, of course, that has a, a Roman epistle sense to it, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how can you identify somebody at the table? Who belongs at the table? Peter, we didn't think circumcision cut it to put us at the table. No, we were seeking to be justified, to be family members of the table in Christ. The problem is, once you do that, you sit down at the table with Gentiles, then under the law, you could be classified as a sinner because now you're eating with Gentiles. And of course, what God was doing was protecting his people, keeping them away from these wicked Gentiles who were idolatrous. Does that mean if we seek in Christ this, 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 justification, this declaration of being in the right, being in the family, if we seek that and, and then we end up eating with Gentiles and by the law's definition we're sinners, is Christ the minister of sin? Oh, no, 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 no. May it never be. Why? Because when Jesus died and rose again, everything changed. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So you see, verse 18 starts out with four. It's a bit of an explanation of verse 17. And what's he talking about? Well, here's what Paul and Peter first did. They just broke that wall apart and said to the Gentiles, come on over and eat with us. Come, let's sit at the same table. Let's eat the same food. Now, Peter, look what you're doing. You are rebuilding. You're putting that wall back up and say, you guys get over here and we'll get over here. We won't eat the same kind of food anymore. We'll, we'll have kosher. You can have whatever you want, pig or whatever. Not us. If you rebuild that wall, and by the way, it was at the temple, a wall surrounding the whole temple, and Gentiles went beyond that wall on the pain of death, but in Ephesians we're told that wall's been torn down. Where? In Christ, in the death of Christ. If we rebuild it, what happens? Well, then the law looks at us and said, hey, yeah, now, now you're back in the law. Look who you are. You're not just a sinner. Because sinners, how the Gentiles were classified, they're, they're, they're godless people. They don't know what they're doing. They just sin and sin and sin. But not, not a Jewish person. He doesn't sin and sin and sin. What he does is he transgresses he steps over the line he knows what god's law is and peter stepped over it and ate with gentiles so paul is making this point that everything's changed well that that that's complicated for us to get a hold of it's difficult then comes a passage that we love Starting in verse 19, I, 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 your, your Bibles may have a little different number in here, but that really doesn't matter. It's, it's the words that matter. So now I'm going to read you five lines, verses 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law, 
that I might live to God. Line one. Now, that's complicated enough. What do you mean, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God? Line two. I have been crucified with Christ. Watch it now. Watch it now. I'm going to give you the translation, and your Bible probably doesn't say this, unless you are reading the King James. I have been crucified with Christ, but I live. That's what it really says in the Greek. Line three. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Line four. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Notice how he picks that term up because circumcision has to do with the flesh. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live within. Not trusting Christ, but the faithfulness of the Son of God. Line five. Who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now, what is Paul talking about? Well, when you come to chapter 3, you discover the question. He says, okay, why was the law added? You got these promises made to Abraham, and then you, you insert this law. Why was the law added? Well, chapter 3 answers that. We're not going to answer it here, but it's noting that law was added. But chapter 3 tells us it was added temporarily, for a time, for a season. It has an expiring date on it. It wasn't going to be forever. And you can see that in the Old Testament if you're looking. If you look in Hebrews, you see it loud and clear. But you can see it through the book of Deuteronomy. You know, because they're going to be blessed, and then they're going to be cursed, and then they're not going to be thrust out of the land. And right now, up to Jesus' day, they're still in exile. Well, they've returned to the land, but they're in exile. They still have all these oppressors over them. What happened? Well, the law did its thing. And then Jesus died, and now you don't need the law anymore. So when Paul says in the first line, for through the law I died to the law, it's just if you read the law and you're under the law's power, you have to obey it, then you discover, wait, 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 this is coming to an end. I'm not, I'm not going to be under it one day. That's what he's saying. So through the law, I died to the the law. Now, here's the problem. In Reformation theology, particularly Luther Reformation theology, the law becomes a bad thing. And so, uh, I can remember we had, a, we had a nice, lovely Lutheran couple in the church some years back, and, you know, we were studying Deuteronomy. You know, I mean, if Lutheran people studying, oh, you can't do that. That's law. And finally, they had enough of my shenanigans. And they left the church. Why? Because Luther, like many, not all dispensationalists, just kind of ripped it out of the Bible. We're not under law. That's just a baby way of looking at things. The law's a good thing. And the law is still operative, written in the New Covenant on our hearts and minds. Not every aspect of it. But you see, what he's saying here is, Okay, things changed. Now God's family's not measured the same way. It's measured by faith. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. What does that mean? 
Were they not living to God under the law? Well, certainly they were, but not in the same free sense that you and I live to God. So what he's saying is, okay, the law had an expiration date. And when Jesus died and I'm on the road to Damascus and I see this bright light, suddenly I realize that the law is dead. For what reason? So I can live to God. What does that mean, live to God? That means, okay, I got life now, and it's all for God. Pursuing God, pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. Or, maybe better yet, God's pursuing us. Like a lion, he comes to get us, and he eats us up and brings him into himself. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. One Greek word, crucified with. But I live. And this is what you see in Romans chapter 6. In baptism, we died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. Surely, this is a bit of a reference to that. Just a, just a, just, you know, you see it in your rear view mirrors, you read, oh, yeah, 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 I've seen this before. I've seen this in Romans chapter 6, and I've seen this in Colossians chapter 2. So when Christ died, and I come to trust Christ, not simply the facts of the cross. Surely that's central. But trust Christ, a person, the God-man. Trust him. So what he says about the cross, well, that's truth. But what he says about family, that's truth. What he says about anything, that's truth. Trust Christ. When I come to trust Christ, or rather, God causes me to trust Christ, what happens? Boom, baptism. Where you're baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You go right into them. It's like coming home. You're in the house. You belong. You're in the family. But you notice the things we've been reading. Christ is also in us. That's what chapter 3 is going to be about in chapter 4. That is, Christ gives a down payment of the promise made to Abraham called the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, a down payment of the Spirit. He comes and lives inside of us. So here we are in God's family. We're in Him. But in some way, He's in us in a transformative way. So our life is totally changing so that we live to God. Line 2. I have been crucified with Christ, but I live. I'm still here. I died with Christ in some sense. I, don't, I, don't, I can't hardly comprehend what that even is. But that's what happened, Paul said. But I'm alive. I live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And you can think of all the scripture in the New Testament about the Spirit leading us. And the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So Christ dwells right in us, and he's leading us away from sin, into righteousness. He's leading us so that when we pick up his word and we listen to him, he's helping us to see who he is and to cling to him and love him all the more and discover, oh my goodness, he is the faithful 
king, Pistis. Line three. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Line four. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Ah, he's going to pick up this flesh idea later on in the epistle. But just think of it. We're coming off the topic of circumcision. You're compelling people to be Jewish, Peter. No, the life I now live in the flesh is not cutting off that flesh so that I prove I'm one of God's members. I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God. Now, here we pick it up again. We saw it in two parts in verse 16. The faithful, I li- this life I'm living, that Christ is living in me, I live in the faithfulness, within the fa- faithful- faithfulness of the Son of God. And so you're, you're, you're picking up these scriptures, the one we love out of 1 Peter chapter 1, where we're protected by God through faith. This is the faithfulness of Christ. Isn't that what it is? Or 2 Timothy chapter 2. The one who endures, he shall inherit. The one who denies, I'll deny him. If you're faithless, I remain faithful. Because I can't deny myself. You see how powerful these six, seven little verses are. It's the conclusion of the biography section of Galatians. But it's just jumping us into chapter 3, and it makes chapter 3 rather exciting. Absolutely fantastic. But you have to move out of the groove of 16th, 17th Reformational theology. Not that you're setting it aside. You're saying, wait, wait, I'm going to go somewhere else for that. That's not what Galatians is about. And I hope next week to prove that to you. And it just opens the door to realize, oh, 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 what we're talking about is not how to be right before a righteous God. That's a worldly subject. But we're talking about who belongs to God's family. Line three, it's no longer I who live, but Christ the King lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by means of or within the faithfulness of the Son of God, picking up Deuteronomy, excuse me, Psalm chapter 2 and the other Old Testament texts, like, like what we've been studying in Chronicles. I'll be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So first off, Paul is using it in, to, to let us know, hey, I'm living by the faithfulness of Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one to David. I'm living by his faithfulness. David wasn't faithful. Solomon wasn't faithful. Which guy was faithful? Oh, 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 wait. King Jesus, he's faithful. That's what he's saying. Now, of course, it has overtones of deity, but that's not his main thought here. This is about the answer to Israel. Why did this age come to an end? Well, what God had planned for Israel, it, it all ended when Israel came. The one Israel light that was faithful to fulfill all the purposes of Israel. That's what he's talking about. Then line five, speaking about the faithfulness of the Son of God, which draws us right back up to chapter one, one through five, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So 
you, you come down to the end and you, you can just see, you can just see, this is family terminology, isn't it? And we're gonna pick up the word adopted in chapter four. It's family terminology. It's not law court terminology. Leave that to Romans. How do you know who belongs to God's people? Not by the works of the law. Now, I agree with those, that within this context, the works of the law are not talking about all kinds of works whereby people try to do them to be right in God's sight. I don't think that's what it's talking about. It's talking about Israel works of identification. How do they know they're the people of God? Ah, because they got circumcision. How do they know they're the people of God? Ah, because the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. How do they know they're the people of God? Oh, it's because God separated them from all the others through the food laws. Those are the kind of laws he's talking about. He's not talking about just everyday Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. No. Hence, Matthew chapter 3. Don't think that you can say, I have Abraham as my father. Just because your blood-kinned Abraham does not make you part of God's family. After crucifixion and resurrection, it is definitely pistis. And here's what happened. The Son of God brought it all about by loving his people, Jewish people, American people, Muslim people, Hindu people, and they come to the light and they see Christ and Christ takes them into himself like a lion devouring his prey and Christ comes to live in them through the Spirit and brings about a great transformation. I died to the law through the law, that I might live to God. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for the book of Galatians and the Apostle Paul and the wonderful insight and knowledge that you gave to him. I pray that you'll help us to uh, understand more and more this very, very massive uh, concept, both of faith and of justification and righteousness. And uh, I know we can, because you promise you'll open the scriptures up to us. We pray that you would do that, and then that we would gain from it to see, to see really what's being said here in terms of application about your people around the world who have pistus. They trust you. And they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And right now as we close, we lift up all of our brothers and sisters around this world who suffer because of faithfulness to Christ. Ease their pain. Make them steadfast unto death. And bring them to glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.